Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This file is being recorded for the May 2023 edition of Socialism for All, and it's an audiobook of The Beginning of the Revolution in Russia by Lenin from 1905. If you like this video, please click like and subscribe, and consider supporting on Patreon at patreon.com slash socialismforall. There's a link to Patreon in the video description. So this piece was published in Viperiod number 4, January 31st, 1905, published according to the text in Viperiod. The source is Lenin Collected Works, Foreign Languages Publishing House, 1962, Moscow, Volume 8, translated by Bernard Isaacs and the late Isidore Lasker, HTML transcription and markup by R. Simbala, and it's in the public domain at the Lenin Internet Archive within the Marxists Internet Archive, marxists.org. Thanks as usual to MIA for hosting this and thousands of other free Marxist texts. So this piece comes from the first Russian Revolution, 1905, basically from 1905, to 1907, there was a period of revolutionary upswing when the Russian population was turning against czarism. Remember that capitalism was slow to develop in Russia. It was considered more backward in that sense. And while some of the more overt forms of feudalism had been abolished by this time, there were plenty of vestiges of it still left, such that the capitalists were not clearly at the head of power within Russian society. Hence, the organized bourgeoisie were part of the, quote, freedom-fighting force within Russia at this time. However, whereas the proletariat, when we organize as a revolutionary force, is fighting to uplift the very bottom of society from the absolute ground up, the bourgeoisie, when they organize as a revolutionary force to overthrow feudalism, they're trying to do so in order to set up another society based on exploitation of the proletariat, by themselves, the capitalists. So quickly, the bourgeoisie's phrases about freedom and democracy reach their limit as they establish their idea of freedom and democracy, that is to say, freedom and democracy for their class, the capitalists. So out of the 1905 revolution, there were some reforms made in the czarist government. A parliament was set up. However, due to the efforts of Lenin, the Bolsheviks, and their supporters, it didn't stop there. And 10 years later, in 1917, there were two revolutions. Early that year, in February, the Tsar was deposed, thus paving the way for the capitalist-led provisional government, and then later that year, the Bolshevik-led Socialist Revolution. The Socialist Revolution that year, you can tell by the timeline, was able, in the context of World War I, was able to strike at and deal a fatal blow to that nascent, not yet fully established bourgeois government. Incidentally, this is exactly the blueprint that Marx and Engels laid out back in 1850 in the Address to the Communist League. You can find it here at the channel by searching on Marx on Guns because it's the source of the under no pretext quote. However, what that is a part of is a formula for the proletariat to set up parallel workers' councils, which were to be run alongside and as a counter to the new capitalist governments that were being set up in the wake of the overthrow of feudalism. And in fact, that's exactly what the Soviets were. Soviet means council. So a fine example of Marxism in practice. All right, so let's begin the beginning of the revolution in Russia. Geneva, Wednesday, January 25. Events of the greatest historical importance are developing in Russia. The proletariat has risen against Tsarism. The proletariat was driven to revolt by the government. There can hardly be any doubt now that the government deliberately allowed the strike movement to develop and a wide demonstration to be started, more or less without hindrance, in order to bring matters to a point 
where military force could be used. Its maneuver was successful, thousands of killed and wounded, such as the toll of Bloody Sunday, January 9 in St. Petersburg. The army defeated unarmed workers, women, and children. The army vanquished the enemy by shooting prostrate workers. We've taught them a good lesson, the Tsar's henchmen and their European flunkies from among the conservative bourgeoisie say with consummate cynicism. Yes, it was a great lesson, one which the Russian proletariat will not forget. The most uneducated, backward sections of the working class, who naively trusted the Tsar and sincerely wished to put peacefully before the Tsar himself the petition of a tormented people, were all taught a lesson by the troops led by the Tsar or his uncle, the Grand Duke Vladimir. The working class has received a momentous lesson in civil war. The revolutionary education of the proletariat made more progress in one day than it could have made in months and years of drab, humdrum, wretched existence. The slogan of the heroic St. Petersburg proletariat, death or freedom, is reverberating throughout Russia. Events are developing with astonishing rapidity. The general strike in St. Petersburg is spreading. All industrial, public, and political activities are paralyzed. On Monday, January 10, still more violent clashes occurred between the workers and the military. Contrary to the mendacious government reports, blood is flowing in many parts of the capital. The workers of Colpino are rising. The proletariat is arming itself and the people. The workers are said to have seized the Sestroretsk arsenal. They are providing themselves with revolvers, forging their tools into weapons, and procuring bombs for a desperate bid for freedom. The general strike is spreading to the provinces. 10,000 have already ceased work in Moscow, and a general strike has been called there for tomorrow, Thursday, January 13. An uprising has broken out in Riga. The workers are demonstrating in Lodz. An uprising is being prepared in Warsaw. Proletarian demonstrations are taking place in Helsingfors. Unrest is growing among the workers, and the strike is spreading in Baku, Odessa, Kiev, Kharkov, Koino, and Vilna. In Sevastopol, the naval stores and arsenals are ablaze, and the troops refuse to shoot at the mutineers. Strikes in Ravel and in Saratov. Workers and reservists clash with the troops in Radom. The revolution is spreading. The government is beginning to lose its head. From the policy of bloody repression, it is attempting to change over to economic concessions and to save itself by throwing a sop to the workers or promising the nine-hour day. But the lesson of Bloody Sunday cannot be forgotten. The demand of the insurgent St. Petersburg workers, the immediate convocation of a constituent assembly on the basis of universal, direct, and equal suffrage by secret ballot, must become the demand of all the striking workers. Immediate overthrow of the government. This was the slogan with which even the St. Petersburg workers, who had believed in the Tsar, answered the massacre of January 9. They answered through their leader, the priest Georgi Gapon, who declared after that bloody day, we no longer have a czar. A river of blood divides the czar from the people. Long live the fight for freedom. Long live the revolutionary proletariat, say we. The general strike is rousing and rallying increasing masses of the working class and the urban poor. The arming of the people is becoming an immediate task of the revolutionary moment. Only an armed people can be the real bulwark of popular liberty. The sooner the proletariat succeeds in arming, and the longer it holds its fighting positions as striker and revolutionary, the sooner will the army begin to waver. More and more soldiers will at last begin to realize what they are doing, and they will join sides with the people against the fiends, against the tyrant, against the murderers of defenseless workers and of their wives and children. No matter what the outcome of the present uprising in St. Petersburg may be, it will in any case be the first step to a wider, more conscious, better organized uprising. 
The government may possibly succeed in putting off the day of reckoning, but the postponement will only make the next step of the revolutionary onset more stupendous. This will only mean that the Social Democrats will take advantage of this postponement to rally the organized fighters and spread the news about the start made by the St. Petersburg workers. The proletariat will join in the struggle. It will quit mill and factory and will prepare arms for itself. The slogans of the struggle for freedom will be carried more and more widely into the midst of the urban poor and of the millions of peasants. Revolutionary committees will be set up at every factory, in every city district, in every large village. The people in revolt will overthrow all the government institutions of the czarist autocracy and proclaim the immediate convocation of a constituent assembly. The immediate arming of the workers and of all citizens in general, the preparation and organization of the revolutionary forces for overthrowing the government authorities and institutions, this is the practical basis on which revolutionaries of every variety can and must unite to strike the common blow. The proletariat must always pursue its own independent path, never weakening its connection with the Social Democratic Party. Comment, that was what they called Marxism at this time prior to the split between what we call social democracy or reformism today and communism. Continuing, always bearing in mind its great ultimate objective, which is to rid mankind of all exploitation. But this independence of the social democratic proletarian party will never cause us to forget the importance of a common revolutionary onset at the moment of actual revolution. We social democrats can and must act independently of the bourgeois democratic revolutionaries and guard the class independence of the proletariat. But we must go hand in hand with them during the uprising, when direct blows are being struck at Tsarism, when resistance is offered the troops, when the bastilles of the accursed enemy of the entire Russian people are stormed. The proletariat of the whole world is now looking eagerly toward the proletariat of Russia. The overthrow of Tsarism in Russia, so valiantly begun by our working class, will be the turning point in the history of all countries. It will facilitate the task of the workers of all nations, in all states, in all parts of the globe. Let, therefore, every social democrat, every class-conscious worker bear in mind the immense tasks of the broad popular struggle that now rest upon their shoulders. Let them not forget that they represent also the needs and interests of the whole peasantry, of all who toil, of all who are exploited, of the whole people against their enemy. The proletarian heroes of St. Petersburg now stand as an example to all. Long live the revolution, long live the insurgent proletariat. So that's the end of the audiobook. I think important to note there, you know, when you're in a pre-revolutionary moment, when you're building the proletarian party, the mass movement for socialism, that is the time for gatekeeping, for debate. In other words, for politics. That's important. It shapes the movement. It sets the values. It establishes the goals. It prevents the infiltration of opposing antagonistic enemy ideas from getting into, infiltrating, tainting, and weakening your class's vehicle for struggle. Hence Lenin's underlining of the need for class independence from the bourgeoisie, even though in that time they did share one common goal. But any good Marxist, and Lenin certainly was a good Marxist, knows that as soon as the bourgeoisie takes power, they're going to set up an engine of exploitation of you and to be ready for that. And that's why the vigilance, the need to be on alert against opportunism, the shifting of politics to be in alignment with forces who have fundamentally an opposed interest to yours. Now today, feudalism is long gone in an advanced capitalist, imperialist country such as the United States. What we do have is varying levels of reaction. 
among the various organized capitalist political forces, with the most ardent of reactionary forces almost taking on a sort of neo-feudalist type of position. However, this is a virtual or mock emulation of feudalism running within capitalism. So for those more sort of radlib opportunists who want to say, for example, that the less outwardly reactionary capitalist factions, such as the Democratic Party, constitutes some kind of freedom-fighting force today. That really isn't the case. As evidenced, I mean, first and foremost, by the fact that they do not truly fight the more reactionary factions. If that were the case, they would be allying with the left and other progressive forces to do away with the more reactionary factions permanently. However, this isn't what they do in practice. They stand in the way of the left and other progressive forces who actually do want to do away with the more extreme faces of reaction and more extreme forms of exploitation. Because what the bourgeoisie was fighting for back in 1905 in Russia, as it had done also in other countries in Europe in decades prior, was the freedom to exploit. They were fighting to set up capitalism as a system, and they had to get the czar out of the way to do that. They were fighting to establish the bourgeois democracy that would be the social basis of capitalism. But in the United States, for example, they're not fighting for that today. They already have that right. We're living in that bourgeois democracy now. Imperialism, the highest, most advanced stage of capitalism, and its domestic ideology, fascism. These are the logical outcomes of running capitalism over time. Yes, first it overthrows feudalism, and it paves the way for more efficient production and material advances, etc. But as capitalism goes on, it doesn't stay this sort of, you know, everybody can get rich sort of dream. It consolidates into monopolies. Financial capital and industrial capital become so intertwined that they effectively fuse into finance capital. A military-industrial complex forms, which is intertwined with finance capital. Overall, a consolidated behemoth built by the capitalists using the labor of the classes they exploit rises above the overwhelming majority of humanity, answering only to the tiny few who claim legal ownership over it. And as for the rest of us who have no stake in that, no interest in that, from an ownership type of perspective, it's on us to do what was put forward by Marx and Engels and Lenin and other great figures within scientific socialism, the abolition of private property and of the entire social system which supports that rule of private property. Fighting for this is fighting for socialism.